Alrighty guys, welcome back to Brolosophy, philosophy through the eyes of an idiot. That idiot is me, and that idiot is proudly supported by Yeti. So why is Yeti worth it guys? It's a premium cooler company. Their coolers are, let's be honest, more expensive than the rest of the shitty coolers on the market. So why is Yeti worth it? Well, firstly, you get what you pay for. A high quality cooler that you never have to replace. Guys, everything that you buy in this day and age is crap. We are consumers, we are not owners. We consume things, products, clothing, um, services. So that's a bad example. But we are not owners. So a cooler like a Yeti cooler is something that you can own for a long time and you'll never have to consume another one, if that makes sense. Superior insulation. A freezer quality gasket and supreme insulation power join forces to deliver unmatched heat and ice retention. So, everybody's been at that party where the beers have gone cold. Oh, damn it. All right, let me rephrase that. Everyone's gone to that party where the beers have gone warm and, uh, you know, you won't be going back to that party the next year, let's be honest. There's nothing worse. So, superior insulation from Yeti. Um, that's, you know, another reason why Yeti's worth it. They're virtually indestructible. This one I really like, guys. So, Yeti have told me 100% straight down the line that these cools have been attacked by bears, chucked out of moving trucks, hit by semis, dropped out of planes, and are still game for more. Now, I've been working with my mate Clay at Yeti, who, uh, who, who, who's my you know, touch point down there, and I've been asking him every week that I want proof of Yeti coolers versus bears. And I'm not sure if it's, you know, three or four Yeti coolers versus a bear. It says bears here. I would actually really think that one bear versus, it would take probably five Yeti coolers to, to beat a bear, I would say. But look, I, well, I, I'm still trying to clarify this this because I don't want to bullshit you guys. You know, I don't want to I don't want to pull the wool over your eyes. It, it says that these coolers have been attacked by bears and, you know, and they're, they're game for more. So I'm working hard to get you the proof that you need. Um, and, you know, stay tuned. Maybe in the next couple of weeks, I'll have something for you on that one. So, five-year warranty on all hard coolers. Proof that our, their products live up to their customers' expectations. Good, good. To learn more about Yeti, guys, head to yeti.com.au forward slash bro. We are also brought to you today by True Protein. Head to trueprotein.com.au forward slash bro, and you'll get 10% off all of their supplement range. I'm not going to do a big read on True Protein. They've been a sponsor of us for a very long time. If you've listened to this show before, you've probably heard me say it a number of different occasions. And that is that they are simply the best in the business. So we love being supported by the best in the business. Yeti are the best in the business. True Protein are the best in the business. And that makes for us for very, very good business. Also, head to athena.co for 20 hours free of our virtual assistant services. So... Guys, basically, what is a virtual... Oh, damn it, Siri. Siri keeps jumping in and trying to tell me what's up. Um, so what are virtual assistant services? So I actually despise the term virtual assistant, but for lack of a better term, we're going to use it. It's our search term. It's the, it's the common term that would refer to what we do, but I really don't like it. Virtual assistants... A virtual assistant is somebody who works inside of your company from abroad. So basically the reason why people would do this is when you're growing a young company, it's hard to scale your team 
Um, you know, it's hard to be a startup and be one, two years in, whatever, and have money to fork out fifty, seventy thousand dollars to grow your team. So that's where we come in. We can help you grow a team member in a quarter of the price, really. And but we don't deal in virtual assistants. That's for lack of a better term, that's what we do. But we really don't. We actually deal in just putting a really talented part-time or full-time team member into your business. And they might be an administrative assistant. They might be a content producer. They might be um, someone who's in HR. They might be a business development manager. The term virtual assistant is a bullshit term. It devalues the person that is on the other end that's working. It's a term that is frowned upon. Unfortunately, for us to grow as a company, we need to dominate that search term in Google. But as soon as somebody becomes a client with us, I tell them to scrap that term, delete it from their vocabulary as soon as humanly possible because it's just it's bullshit. People work virtually all over the world now. And I'm not only talking about people in underprivileged countries, people in Australia, people in the US, people in the United, uh, United Kingdom. They work remotely and they're no different to anyone else. So um, the term virtual assistant just needs to be trampled on and, and squished and squashed and scratched out of it. But to get 20 hours free of virtual assistants, head to athena.co, that's Athena with a Y, and in the inquiry box, put the code BRO and you will activate your 20-hour um, trial. So anyway, here's the show. Now before we do this, let's go over the ground rules. Rule number one. Thanks for coming on the show. So, as you said, you're a bit of a, um, a self-confessed finance nerd. Um, but, you know, what else do you do? Who is Adrian Stone? Yeah, great question. Uh, number one, I'm probably one of the oldest people you've had on the show. <laughs> I'm 61, so it's time to switch oh, off now. Oh, well, yeah, no, that's interesting. But I don't a, know if we've had too many 60-year-olds. Definitely a, no 70-year-olds. <laughs> I'm a boomer who believes in climate change, so I'm okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay, boomer. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I started off, you know, with a uh, business background, or that's not true, I started off before then, uh, I had an IT degree back in the 70s, where we were using punch cards, which mm -hmm. is really hilarious, mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, I really never programmed, <laughs> I can, but I never did, so I kept away from the tech stuff, yep. but I did join IBM, more in sales and, you know, mm -hmm. technical support, and had a really amazing, I'd say 10 years there, but after the sixth year, I got this thing I call an entrepreneurial seizure, mm -hmm. for some random I have no idea what the tipping point was, but I just remember I had this sudden des desire to get in my own business and be a startup founder, mm -hmm. and you know how tough that can mm -hmm. be. Oh, it can be very tough. <laughs> and for the next four years, I just stressed out. You know, IBM was the best company in the world to work for at that stage, like working for Google or Facebook yep. today. Yep. And I went from really happy to like miserable thinking, what could I do? Yep. You know, and I'm really kind of risk averse. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I ended up leaving IBM to join IDB in dad's business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. First steps any entrepreneur should take. <laughs> yeah, drop near dad's business. <laughs> 
But uh, and you know, for the, for the first two years, we were lending money to panel beaters, uh, fixing cars, body shops in America, because mm-hmm. you know they're real people. They're 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 real entrepreneurs because yep. they're out there fixing cars every day, trying to pay wages, mm-hmm. and you have real conversations with them. Yeah. There's none corporate bullshit. Real brick and mortar, brick and mortar, true businesses. Yeah, and after ten years working for IBM <laughs> and you know coming from the university system, it was just such a a relief to throw the suit away. Yeah. It's just wear casual clothes like you're doing now. Yeah, I'm probably overly casual, actually. <laughs> well, I'll come th- straight off the beach. <laughs> the <laughs> sun's see- not even out. Video can't see because I'm <laughs> <of> the counter. <laughs> I am wearing long pants. <laughs> Agents nude, uh, nude from the bottom down, I'll tell you the truth. <laughs> so I wore you know, casual clothes, went around speaking to panel beaters for the next two years. It was a complete mental reset. Mm-hmm. Then a couple of things happened. One, my father got very sick and two, the business uh, had some financial issues mm-hmm. and pretty much went under. So I rebooted the business after a couple of years. So I was 30, I'm thinking 32 to 33, something like that. Yep. And I'm starting from absolute scratch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I rebooted the business. I went to a bank. Uh, they gave me a couple of million dollars unsecured. I have no idea why. Wow. Jeez, banks were generous back in the day, weren't they? <laughs> yeah. And, and look, without that, I wouldn't have had my finance company up and going. Uh, so, but I kind of thought that that business would always stay a small business because we need bank money and it's really hard to get. Mm-hmm. And I was probably right in hindsight. And I decided to start another business, a service business in the uh, car accident space. We were basically doing motor claims for corporate fleets mm-hmm. where their drivers are driving around, but they don't carry insurance mm-hmm. because their balance sheet's bigger than double AMIs. Mm-hmm. And so we were sort of one of the first, certainly the first in Australia and one of the first in the world to actually create an internet-enabled system, a SaaS product eventually. Yeah, right. But we had no idea what SaaS was. Yeah, that's right. We were charging recurring revenue and we were taking commissions from the panel beaters. And what year was this? 19, oh, what am I talking about? 2000. Oh, okay. So, so was, probably was, probably about the seventh SaaS business at this stage. Yeah. Well, and the first... <laughs> Worldwide. Full, first, first full complete iLogistics business because I saw in a newspaper somebody was advertising that they were the first mm-hmm. and we had a very similar system and clearly we came before them. Uh, and, uh, but I kind of realised that even that business, although it was growing gangbusters, Australia was just too small. Yep. And that's one of my bugbears about you know, entrepreneurs and you know, when investing in them is, is having a look at the guys or girls who are really looking at Australia as a starting point or mm-hmm. whether they're looking at Australia as the be-all and end-all. Yep. And I learned the hard way that even in my business, uh, I could not possibly build a, a scalable business in Australia. Mm-hmm. So I you know, explained it to my wife and uh, she really, she quit a corporate job straight away, she understood, mm-hmm. and we went to America and did a joint venture there because we didn't know anything about venture capital. I could mm-hmm. probably raise VC. It was a SaaS business after all. Mm-hmm. But we went the joint venture route, so I found a corporate partner who took 49% of the business. We took 51 Perfect. So that was in 2004. We grew that business, but I was, you know, I'm very risk-averse, so the mm-hmm. minute I signed the contract, I looked for an acquirer. Yep. And two years later, I'd sold my businesses to an English, small English public company. Really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that sounds like a great result. It was a great result for me because uh, the money came in. I made sure it was an all-cash deal. I don't believe in shares and mm-hmm, shares. Mm-hmm. I said to them, uh, why should I swap risk in a company I know being mine for risk in a company <laughs> I don't know being yeah, yours? Yeah, I'll take the briefcase, uh, the briefcase buyout. Thanks, guys. And the CEO <laughs> looked at me and said, good call. <laughs> and so I exited just before the 2008 crash. Yep. So what, 2006 this is? 2006, yeah, mid-2006, we, we yep. uh, sold the business. Uh, you, you always stay on what's called an earnout clause. Mm-hmm. They want to keep you doing the handover, keep yep. you interested. 
But, you know, here's another tip for uh, anybody. Uh, if you're investing in the startup and the founder, or you can exit, let's say you start your own startup and the corporate buys you, uh, don't expect to ever last the three-year earn-out and don't <laughs> expect to get a penny out of it because <laughs> yeah. uh, they'll manipulate it so you won't. I walked out okay, but I stayed one and a half years and came back to Australia. Uh, I've got a buddy who, um, who just sold a um, coffee pod startup and um, he was supposed to be running the show for um, X amount of time after the, sa- after the sale and I just emailed with him and he's going free diving and he's on holidays for a little while and I think it was just like, yeah, cool, done my part here and then, you know. Yeah, you don't want to be there and actually they don't want you there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So, um, so what got you into like, obviously um, everyone has their reasons for going into entrepreneurship. They have, maybe they see a frustration and, and they're like, okay, I can I come up with an idea to fix this. They have, you know, it uh, kind of, it's one of their values that is they've brought up with through their family. Or like, what was it for you that grabbed you and just, you know, forced you basically down the entrepreneurial path? Uh, as I said, first thing was I had that seizure. I don't know why I had it. Yeah. I tried to be an entrepreneur. I don't remember having a huge entrepreneurial streak, surprisingly. Especially being risk-averse, like you say, self, self-confessed um, risk-averse, um, you know, chap. But they say that, that the two most powerful forces in the universe are greed and risk, mm-hmm. you know, fear, mm-hmm. and I have the fear rather than the greed. <laughs> so I'm no Gordon Gecko, but... Uh, <laughs> and, you know, the funny thing is when you are an entrepreneur, you throw yourself into dangerous situations mm-hmm. and then you say, oh, hey, shit, I'm in the middle of the water with sharks all around me. That's when your fear, or for me, that's when the fear thing kicks yeah. in and then I have to paddle to shore again. Yeah. So that's why I'm probably succeed as an entrepreneur because I throw myself in. And, and then, then what? So shore is your uh, shore is your exit. Yeah. Paddling to shore is your Paddling exit. Paddling to shore is my exit. <laughs> yeah. So I'm again yeah. not that's one good. of that's I'm not one of those you know founders that that thinks that you should build a, a business for life because I just think that things change too often. Technology mm-hmm. changes, mm-hmm. time changes. I think a five to ten year outlook for me is plenty. Mm-hmm. So I kind of like. I'm the type of founder that wants to build an exit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't necessarily invest in startups exactly the same as that. I'll invest in any type of founder, but mm-hmm. for me, that's just a sensible outcome to aim for. Yeah, right. So, and then did you grow up as, um, as you said, you're, you're, you know, personal finance and finance itself is, is something that you're big on. Did you grow up just with, uh, like, being good at numbers, good at analysing, you know, certain bits and pieces? Like, what, what got you to that point? Yeah, that's... <laughs> I was thinking about that walking on the way here for some reason. My two passions are like personal finance, which is numbers, mm-hmm. and investing in startups as a VC and independently, which is all about investing in future numbers. Yep. And I've come at all this with a complete non-financial background whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was an IT guy. I, was, yeah. you know, I could code, I could mm-hmm. drink and have You could a, talk in ones and zeros, but you couldn't talk in twos, threes, fours, fives and sixes. Perfectly <laughs> said, thank you. So I, I learned the hard way. You know, I lost yeah. money, people stole money from me along the way. Really? I didn't know how to manage my businesses properly financially and over time you learn. Mm-hmm. I definitely agree with that. I, um, my first, I've been quite entrepreneurial in my life. I, uh, my first entrepreneurial job was... Um, I grew up in St. Andrews Beach on the Moines Peninsula and our five-acre block of land backed onto the back of the Dunes Golf Course. So my first entrepreneurial venture was me and my best buddy would go over to the golf course and we would steal golf balls and then we would wash them and sell them back to the golfers. So that bought me my first ever CD. That was my first ever entrepreneurial. We didn't really steal them. We kind of just found the ones that were off the beaten track. And then every now and again, we you know pinch a good one off the um, You just reminded me of my first entrepreneurial venture. I was about... Maybe I was 18, maybe I had a car, but 
but I got this idea of putting security peepholes in the people's front doors. You remember those things? Yeah. Now you have a ring on your doorbell, which is uh, Wi-Fi, mm. so mm-hmm. you don't need the peephole anymore. But in those days, you did. And I got this idea that I'm going to go around door-to-door installing peepholes in people's doors. How hard can it be? Yeah. So like the worst entrepreneur in the world, first of all, I started with buying everything. Mm-hmm. So I ordered from somewhere, you know, 200 peepholes. <laughs> I bought a drill because I didn't have a drill. Yeah. I bought hole saws. <laughs> I bought coveralls. And I got yeah. some sort of logo. <laughs> you embroidered. Yeah. You embroidered. You went all in. <laughs> and then I thought, I've got all the gear. I have to practice putting a peephole in. I'll go to my sister's place. So I went to my sister's place and said, I'll put a peephole into your door. And so the first thing was I drilled the hole from the outside in and it just splintered everywhere. <laughs> so I put a hole way too big for a peephole. So I bought another 200 it's a fully, It's a full look hole. So I bought another 200 peepholes that were large on one side and small on the other, went to her place and plugged it in and it covered... Yeah, covered your covered your mistake. Yeah, covered my mistake. <laughs> then I threw the drill away, the uniform away. I went to the market and sold all the peepholes I'd left mm-hmm. at a loss. <laughs> yeah, and that was the end of it. Yeah, no. Well, I think we we make. Um, hopefully, I think the best entrepreneurs make mistakes. Not once they might make, might make recurring mistakes, but in a in a business, and then they learn from that in their next business. You know, I, I um, I have there's a lot of travel books up there. Lonely Planet Travel Guides. I had an adventure travel company for the fitness community. Um, I founded it in 2013. Um, I really think it was a new concept at the time. There was no one doing it. Now all your G Adventures and Intrepid, they all have wellness travel. And I really do think that we were one of the first. Uh, adventure Fit, it was called. And, um, and I tracked nothing. Financially, marketing spend, you know, so on and so forth, ROI, whatever. And as I progress, I started to understand, okay, cool, I'm flying blind here, I'm being an idiot, whatever. And I tried to learn on, on the fly, but I was so far, I'd, I'd, I'd fucked it by that stage. You know what I mean? And I'd also lost love for it and so forth. And it was great, the product was really good. So, um, and what ended up happening was I shut Adventure Fit down a year and a half ago. And my next company that I have now, which is a closed freelancer marketplace, it's like we know day to day every cent is accounted for and I'm actually good with numbers now and I can talk any you know if I was on a Shark Tank pitch <laughs> I'd be able to answer all the questions you know yeah. um, get Steve Baxter on the show and see if he'll uh, <laughs> you on the spot yeah um, so and that was just because I knew that had I had I known what I didn't know at the, at the time and had I had it been now adventure would have probably been a different story but you know I think that it's fair to make mistakes and you know stuff up along the way but you've got to evolve and you've got to learn from them so um, so after you, uh, so after you had the exit in 2006, though, so that was like, like sounds like it was quite a success. Probably financially was was quite good. And, and so, so what was next then? Uh, I retired. So I was 40. I think I was 48 years old. Uh, we decided somewhere in that time to come back to Australia. We had a house. We ended up selling the house because we figured... So you're living in the US when you're doing yeah, this? Yeah, we're living in Chicago. Oh, right. Full yeah, on. Yeah, so we, 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 we weren't expecting to live there. We thought we'd go for two years. I wanted my company to be 100% run by Americans. Yep. Uh, but it was such a difficult joint venture, such a difficult relationship. After a year or two, we said, you know, we're going to stay for the duration. And mm-hmm. then, of course, suddenly we sold the business mm-hmm. unexpectedly early. I know I was looking for the acquirer, but it happened mm-hmm. very quickly. Mm-hmm. So we had to reverse all that, sell the house during the crash, and we came back. But yeah, I retired for a good two years, I'd say, either side of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, when you retire, I think it's, it's a, it, 
even a long sabbatical, it becomes a struggle for relevance and meaning. Yeah. So if you're not like, you know, if, if you like to play golf and that's your passion, then the relevance and meaning will be the competitions you have around golf and maybe yeah. beating your own, you yeah. know, challenging yourself. But even that can only go so far. I don't know. I haven't tried that. Yeah. I, I like playing poker, yeah. but I can't imagine myself going to Crown Casino every day and playing yeah. poker like some of the other old blokes. Yeah. There. And there's not a whole lot of meaning in bettering your poker game. There's, there's enjoyment. And there's, you know, but I think, yeah, I think meaning is very important. Yeah, so I have, you know, one of the things on my, on my personal life checklist, which I created, and we can go back and talk about the personal finance side later. One of the things was I wanted to be a venture, venture capitalist. Yep. I didn't know what being a, ven- a venture capitalist <laughs> actually meant. I didn't realize a VC meant investing other people's money. Yeah. What I really wanted to be was an angel investor yes. investing gotcha. my own money. Yep. And I kind of figured that, that I had a... I, I had $500,000 in my budget for that. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I figured, well, if I invest in ordinary businesses, they each need a couple hundred grand. Mm-hmm. It's like one or two or three businesses and then I've done my dough. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't sound like fun to me. Mm-hmm. But I said, there's these things called startups. And I asked around and people said, oh, you get one of those off the ground for like 50 grand. So I thought, well, if I invest in 10 startups, that's 500 grand. Mm-hmm. I can have more fun yeah. and maybe more chance of getting a winner. Yeah. So that was my thinking at the time. And I met up with a couple of people in the space, one including Nathan Sampamon, who is founder of Inspire9, mm-hmm. Melbourne's probably first and best tech uh, co-working space. Oh, I've been to Inspire9. Yeah, 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 I had a meeting there once. Uh, it's in Footscray or something, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, well, there's one in Footscray, but the first one was in, in Richmond. Yeah, I've been to the Footscray one, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so Nathan and I got chatting and... Uh, and we thought, well, hang on, there's these things called, like Y Combinator, these things like called accelerators around the world. Mm-hmm. Why don't we set up one of those? And I thought, that's great. Not only do I not have to spend my own money, but I can spend other people's money <laughs> investing in more startups. Yeah. And so that's kind of what we did. So in 2011, uh, Nathan and I started Melbourne's first venture accelerator called Angel Cube, mm-hmm. which ran out of Inspire9 because you need a space. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, we invested in four tech startups in the first year just to test the concept. Mm-hmm. And then uh, between five and 10 for the next five years. So we ended up with a portfolio of about 30 startups, yep. including LifeX, who were a big Kickstarter project and do the uh, Wi-Fi light bulbs. Yep, gotcha. Uh, Tableau, a fantastic book publishing platform. So when you do your book, that's where you'll go. <laughs> you know, and a whole bunch of others. Yeah, cool. But along the way, I also started angel investing, which is the difference. Mm-hmm. VC investing other people's money. Yep. I started angel investing my own money as well. Mm-hmm. So I've invested in about another 30 start- startups. And I try not to overlap the two pools mm-hmm. very much. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so, so your strategy when investing as a VC mm-hmm. compared to your strategy as you, you, know, you know, looking after yourself as an angel investor, how does it differ if at all? Yeah, no, it's 100% different. Well, one, the model is different anyway because a venture accelerator invests a very small amount of money into a cohort, which Mm -hmm. means five or 10 at the same time. And you take them through a three-month process. So so it's a bit more of a batch. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, I shouldn't say Not always VCs though, right? Not all VCs is an accelerator. Yeah. No, that's very unusual. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But But in this case. Yeah, in this case. Normal VCs just do the same thing. They just, you know, look at deal flows that comes Mm -hmm. and invest as it comes. But you're right, when you're investing other people's money, even at that very early stage, there's a lot of, um, not a lot of responsibility and duty, Mm -hmm. fiduciary duty, legal duty, but also moral duty. (laughs) Yeah. Look after other people's (laughs) money. I used to say when I'm investing my own money, 
that I invest in any startup as long as it's breathing. And if it's not breathing, I push it, then invest in it. So my my own personal strategy is much more founder-based, very loose, very relaxed, very... Going with your gut a lot more, I I would assume. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, cool. So... Uh, I remember um, I had a look at some of your um, some of your writings on um, Medium, and, and I noticed that that you've got sixty startups in your at at one point you'd had sixty startups in your portfolio. So, is that still the case? Yeah, something yeah, like that. Half, 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 yeah. direct, half through the fund. Okay, cool. So, if you're and that must be over the last eight to ten years. Year, years. Yeah. So, how many startups? This is just this is kind of off topic a little bit, but I, I just wanted to know. Um, how many startups have you invested in and how many startups do you still have in your portfolio, okay, so, so to speak? It's very hard to know when the startup isn't in your portfolio because they have to actually go belly up and liquidate the company yeah. and do all those things. And not all startups do that. Mm-hmm. So I haven't had many liquidations. Oh, yeah, okay. So technically the rest, therefore, are still in my portfolio. But, oh, really? But then there's breathing or not breathing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're in ICU. They're just hiding. Yeah. <laughs> They're hiding. <laughs> you're, you're, you're either... You're exactly, they could be on holidays, they could be hiding, or they could be in hospital. Yeah. We don't know. Yeah. So I just know the ones that are really active that I talk to a lot. And again, because I consider myself founder-friendly, I don't push myself on founders. If they reach out to me, mm-hmm. I'll communicate with them, talk to them, help them out. So that's a handful. Yeah, Small okay. Handful. All right, cool. So so you've obviously had some good wins then. So in the portfolio that you've got, like, what are some... Can you give us some examples of some really... Good wins, and I don't mean like huge exit or just like a concept that you've really loved, something that's changed an industry, you know, like something that's emotionally like a real win for you. And maybe like if there's any that I oh, just you got any, if you got any horror stories, they're always good too. <laughs> well, you have a lot of horror stories. Let me start off with the very first one. It's kind of funny. So <laughs> this was our very first year of Angel Cube, 2011. We're trying to build a community up by its bootstraps. Yep. You know, through the co-working space, through the fund. It was mm-hmm. very high profile. Mm-hmm. So AFR, you know, fit the Fin Review, put mm-hmm. out a full page on us with photos straight away. BRW was a magazine. Yep. gave us a full page. It was unbelievable how much PR we got without trying. We didn't try any PR. It just yep. came. So this was a big cube. People were watching this. And so we took on four <laughs> startups and we wanted to generate at least some successes and six weeks into the program, and we pay them up front. Yep. It was only $20,000 in those days, but yep. still. Yep. And uh, four weeks or six weeks after we started, one of the founders gone. Didn't see him again. Never heard of that person again. What? Gone. <laughs> <laughs> An absconsion. Not bad. Not bad. <laughs> He's for, straight to Mexico. $20,000 for six weeks working. Not bad if you can <laughs> yeah. get it. You know? I'd take it. I'd take it. <laughs> I probably should invest in him again. A smart <laughs> so that's probably wow. an example of, 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 a, of like a real failure. And what do you think happened there? Uh, I think he went surfing. Full on. Yeah. He just said, oh, you know what? This is a sh- I'm not willing to follow through with this. I'm, just, I'm off and I'll take the cash. No idea. Gone. Never oh, heard. Really? Never, and this person was actually a pillar of the startup community before that. Yeah, like they're right. almost a public figure in the space. No one's heard of this Drop their name since. if you like. No, I'm not dropping their name. <laughs> if I can't remember the name, to tell the truth. But you know, I spoke, to, I spoke to Dave McClure from 500 Startups in San Francisco. He's probably one of the uh, real, you know, really early American accelerators. I think they've invested in like 2,000 startups. Puts us mm-hmm. you know, to shame. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I was chatting to him and he's... He, and, and he opened my eyes to philosophy. He said, look, when you write this many checks, we don't care if somebody runs off with the money. Yeah. You know, there's going to be failures of any sort. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. One of them is, happens to be theft. <laughs> exactly. One of them happens to be theft. Yeah. And that's very philosophical. So with, it, with our numbers that we gave to our investors, we said we would invest in like 40 startups. We ended up doing 30 just because of 
time reasons. Yeah. But we'd invest in forty startups, and we expect four to exit. Yeah. If we knew which four, we wouldn't invest in the other thirty-six. Yeah, of course. So clearly, we expect to tear up thirty-six checks. Yeah. So it doesn't matter how we tear it up. Yep. Tear it up. Yep. Fair enough. So when you're looking for an investment. And I mean, or a founder, I guess. I mean, it depends on. But when you're looking for an investment as a VC, what are you really looking for? Because a lot of the, a lot of the listeners of this show, they won't really understand the VC. I understand it a little bit. Um, even talking the word SaaS, people will be at the start of the show. People will be going, "What the fuck is SaaS?" You yeah. know. And for the people that don't know, it's software as a service. But like when we're talking VC, um, that world, and you're looking for an in, an investment, what are some of the what are some of the things that you're looking for? Okay, so the first thing to realize, as we said before, a VC or venture capitalist, some call them vulture capitalists. <laughs> uh, <and there's laughs> Vampire a, capitalists. Well, there's a lot of backlash <laughs> on VCs at the moment. So the idea is, is uh, for you know, people watching or listening, uh, that a venture capitalist, again, has that uh, what we call a power law theory, that they'll, inv- like you do a startup, you expect a 100% success rate because mm-hmm. otherwise you're dead, you're finished, mm-hmm. you've mm-hmm. failed. So it's either, it's a zero or one outcome pretty much. Yeah. You either failed or, you know, or not. Uh, but, the v- but on the other hand, if you reach break even, you might just sit on that break even point. That means that you know, you've got as much money coming in the door mm-hmm. as expenses and with a software business maybe doesn't take so long. It may be that you can make enough money for yourself to live on. Yeah. And think about whether you're going to keep it, grow it, sell it, whatever, mm-hmm. over time. But as soon as you take venture capital money in the door, they take a board seat. They have a say in your company. They won't do it without a say in your company, as, yep. as you would expect. Mm-hmm. They want you to go big or go home. Yeah. So now what it's like is instead of inv- you know investing, you know instead of backing a baseball player could be second baseman or third baseman or BBL, there you go, perfect mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. Instead of looking at someone who might be playing test cricket, venture capitalists are investing in, in 2020. Yeah. You've got to go up there and bash the shit out of the ball. Yeah. And you're either going to go huge or you're going to get out. And they yeah. don't care because they're making 10 investments, like 10 batsmen. This analogy is going really well. Yeah, no, it is a great analogy. <laughs> well, well, someone's going someone's to hit 80 off 30 balls. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But it's probably not going to be you and they've just pushed you into a binary outcome. Yep. You no longer have the option to sit back and just reach break even mm-hmm. and just see what happens. You're either in or you're out. Yep. Yeah, Yeah. that's interesting because um, I had a, um, through Startmate, who I know you're, you're a part of, I had a meeting with um, Paul Naf- Naftali mm-hmm. recently. Because um, it was like, we weren't, I wasn't applying for um, the cohort or anything like that. It was through, uh, it was actually through the commons. So it was like, uh, it was basically some advice over 30 minutes and then if you showed promise, maybe you'd talk about the cohort and whatever. And then I remember Paul asking me um, at the start of the call, he was like, so what are we talking about here? He was lovely. I liked this. Like, he, was, he was great to chat to. But um, he said to me at the very start of the call, he said, so what are we talking about here? Are we talking win, win, or, um, win at all costs? Or what? And, and I was kind of, I gave him an answer that was more along the lines of, well, well, you know. And then as soon as I said that, I thought, Fuck, this bloke's not even going to pay attention now. No, he's <laughs> you done. know what I mean? You lost um, him. Yeah, because you were supposed to get um, a second. Because uh, I know heaps of the start, uh, start mate crew, and I was really wanting to get a second, um, uh, a second interview. Like you get a second one if you yeah. show potential, or whatever. And then as soon as I said that, I was like, "Fuck." Which, but I was just being honest, you know. But um, but yeah, it's win or go home. So so rule one: never be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I live my life like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, yeah, right, cool. So you you have to have ambition is obviously number one. The founders yeah. have to be yeah. like, all right, cool. We're going to take over the world. 
and um, you guys can yeah. give some money and come along for the ride. That's kind of like what you want to see from a founder, yeah. I guess. And what we're seeing in San Francisco, for example, is a bubble. And if you read the like TechCrunch and all the newspapers, you think that's truth. But right now, the venture capital money is chasing the startups. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the rest of the world, particularly Australia, the startups are chasing the money, yep. as you would kind of logically expect. Yeah. Uh, so you know, there's, there's too many startups chasing too few VCs, even though a lot of uh, money has come into the scene via the superannuation funds recently. So when you go and approach a VC, number one, you ha- VCs don't operate all at the same level. I'm talking about financially. Yeah. So they tend to be strated, almost like a building. Yep. And like an accelerator, like we were running, I would call basement level. Yeah. Like you're not really a full startup yet. You're taking $20,000. Ground level for a startup is maybe when you've taken a little bit of friends and family money, mm-hmm. 50 grand, maybe you've got an angel investor or a rich uncle or auntie who's put in maybe another 50 or 100 grand. So you might have, you know, 50,000 or 100,000 and you're building your startup and traveling along the way. Yep. Then you probably go through first floor and second floor, which might be what the angel rounds, mm-hmm. where you're going to people like me and raising maybe $250,000, but it might be from four, five, six or more individual angels. Yep. And the type of documentation you use is very light. It could be either a convertible note or it can be a, a share agreement to sell, but it doesn't really matter at that stage. Yep. And that's when, if you get through those stages... And you're now maybe turning over a million dollars a year, real revenue, not you know fake market revenue, but mm-hmm. not, like for your travel business, not bookings going through your platform, mm-hmm. but actually commission you're getting, mm-hmm. which is your real revenue. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when you get to about a million dollars there, you might start knocking on the door of the Paul Nathalies of this world, yeah. looking to raise you know half a million dollar, million dollar round. And that would be so. And that would be technically like. The next round would be what they would call like a Series A, Series B, Series C. Would that be right? Yeah, probably a seed round would be an angel round, seed round in Australia, yep. probably the same. You're right. Yep, yep. So in Australia, maybe it could be a Series A or a, or a large seed. Or a, The numbers get very murky. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's use, because again, I, I understand somewhat of, of, of this, but I like to think how my listeners would be thinking. And I know my listeners would be thinking, what do people actually invest? So let's use... Maybe, um, could you give us a bit of an idea if you know the numbers? Do you know the numbers of Canva, for example? Everyone knows Canva? Yeah, I don't know the numbers. Well, what can you give us an example of like a typical, pretty successful raise? Like what would a Series A, what would a um, seed round be? What would a Series A, Series B, Series yeah. C? You know, a really successful, just to put it into perspective okay. for people. Numbers obviously, you know, are all over the place. Yeah. But just notionally, I would say that again, an, a, a, uh, an advisory round or an accelerator round or a friend's family fool's round, as we call it, <laughs> would be about $50,000. Yep. Uh, an, an advi- or an advisory round, where you get maybe one angel investor who's going to give you some advice yep. and just underpin that first bit. The next round, probably two fifty to 500000 would be an angel round. Mm-hmm. Uh, I call that a seed round, probably. Yep. A sm- you know, a small seed round these days, maybe. <laughs> what, the next round would be a large seed round or, or, or even an A round would mm-hmm. be probably a million dollars. Mm-hmm. A B, two, three, five million dollars. Yep. And then you're Whatever. probably talking about Australian Stock Exchange <laughs> yep. type type raising. You know? Yep. Yeah, cool. Um, all right. So, and then as a VC as well, so you're looking at, uh, you know, ambition from the founder, you're looking at the founder themselves. What type of companies are you going for? Like what type of business models, what type of industries, what really lights you know, lights the eyes of, of an investor. Well, this is really topical because uh, 
right now, especially in the USA, but also here, you're hearing about a lot of direct-to-consumer e-commerce brands. Mm -hmm. So e-commerce is coming into a, a reawakening. Mm -hmm. But the type is, you know, where you might put a mattress into a box, slap and that, you know, yeah. you, or, you know Casper Koala style. Yeah, find yeah. one from China, slap your own name on the side yeah. and just sell online. So those direct-to-consumer businesses have shown a bit of a flaw in the venture capital model because venture capitalists typically invest in software, mm -hmm. typically, mm -hmm because they're high margin businesses. Mm -hmm. You need a few smart you know, girls in a room, guys mm. in a room, mm. doing some coding, and you, know, you can turn out a product that you can sell for $50,000, $150,000 a month, and you don't need to do much of that to make a lot of profit. Yeah. Uh, so VCs love those types of businesses. They seem to like it more, even more if they're recurring revenue, which, means, which is why this software as a service thing, it just means that, that you're giving uh, your client, be a business or a person, access to your software, and, and they punch your credit card once a month. Yeah. That's what a SaaS business is. Yeah. Canva is another really good example of, of, of yeah. that. Yeah. So Canva, yeah, has got some recurring revenue and they've got some transactional revenue, but mainly recurring and they're growing like game busters. And mm. that's what VCs are really looking for, high growth. So mm -hmm. software businesses really give you that. Mm -hmm. So going back to what they don't invest in or do invest in but shouldn't, that might show the line, is when you are doing a mattress business and putting a mattress into a box, you suddenly not just got a bunch of smart people in a room, yeah. but you've got stock as well. Yeah, logistics and stock. Yeah, and so lots you of have a thing called growth. Yeah, you're exactly, cogs. Mm. So you've got a gross margin that has just dropped from 80% to 50% mm -hmm. to maybe 60% if you're doing really well. Yep. So you just lost 20 points, one-fifth of your potential mm -hmm. profit margin. Uh, in fact, you probably lost your whole profit margin. And so venture capitalists just started to realise that those businesses just don't scale the same way as a software business, mm -hmm. and they've been valuing them like software because they're e-commerce. Well, they're yeah, all, but they're, they're technically online, so their but their value is much lower. Yeah, they're really traditional businesses dressed online. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think venture capitalists now are starting to make this distinguish between businesses that are software businesses or technology business can be hardware as well mm -hmm. versus businesses that are enabled by technology mm -hmm. every business nowadays is enabled by technology That's right. shopify you're an e-commerce business yeah so there's no reason why venture capital should pay you huge multiples yeah yeah you can be a bricklayer that brings in all of his business through facebook ads and you you're not exactly a software business you know you're not a yeah. You're not going to have that same multiplier. But if you're a brick, and then if you're a bricklayer who buys a brick printing machine, then you're just a better, more profitable business. Mm -hmm. But you still haven't got scalability, so you're still yep. not investable. Mm -hmm. But if you're a bricklayer who invents a 3D brick printing machine, is first to take it to market and can show some signs that people want it. You're going to have 75,000 VCs chasing fighting. your door. <laughs> yeah. Throwing the money at you. To, to anyone listening, there's a business idea for you. If you're not already onto it, brick, uh, 3D brick printing. It's um, free, free, uh, free advice from Adrian Stone here. <laughs> but um, so if you were, say, a brick and mortar business or you were a, um, a service-based business or an e-com business, that's where you would go and have more luck, I guess, with uh, an angel investor. Someone who has less appetite for risk, doesn't have as big of a, you know... Um, funds to call upon and he's happy to play the longer, slower game and be more hands-on and involved. Would that be fair to say? Yes. And again, it probably depends. Like the ideal angel investor is somebody who's got some domain experience. Mm -hmm. So again, if you're looking for somebody to fund your brick printing machine because there's capital costs and really is it going to grow that big? 
if you've got somebody from that industry, like who was a bricklayer themselves, but yeah. ended up with a lot of money, yep. they're going to be passionate about it yep. and more like to invest. Yeah, cool. So, um, so talking about um, VC and, and uh, really like, for example, um, I was listening to a um, podcast the other day that was talking about um, Tesla for one, Tesla's stock price over the, over the last, um, over since 2020, basically, and since they've been releasing their numbers. And, um, but basically the move towards lots of venture capital money going to clean industry and so forth. Um, so can you talk to me about that? I mean, I know Startmate just ran a, a climate cohort and, um, and I, I want to learn more and I want to actually, I, I'm hoping that you give me the answer that, that, I, that I'm looking for here. But like, um, is that, is clean industry and um, I mean, I guess the climate industry, is that basically a real rush for VCs and for startup founders and so forth? It's definitely a rush for startup founders because they're motivated by social need and, and you know, things other than money. Mm-hmm. It's a rush for VCs, most VCs, because it's a potential gold rush, mm-hmm. not because it's necessarily climate changing. I yep. mean, whether, whether, a VC, no, that's right. whether an individual VC or partner of the firm has those thoughts, and they probably do because they're probably you know, younger and mm-hmm. you know, uh, they're more likely to have those thoughts, they can't direct their fund to invest anywhere other than where they're going to get the best return yeah. using a model. So unless that VC has been set up specifically to do social impact, and there are some, yep. and, and more and more growing all the time. Mm-hmm. So just like they're triple net bottom line companies, they're triple bottom line venture capital firms. And it seems that the numbers coming out of those firms is that you're actually not penalised by investing in you know, things that have social impact or environmental impact. Yep. You, and in some cases, you actually improve the financial outcomes, yep. which is great. Yeah. Um, I remember I met um, a gentleman named Will Richardson, I think, from Startmate. And what's his uh, investment f- um, firm called? They're social, yeah, social so that's, impact that's, investment, that's, really. Yeah, so that's the Giant Leap, the Giant, giant Leap, Leap Fund, yeah, who are right. doing really amazing things. And, and again, the perfect example, like I've seen some of the startups they've invested in, and uh, you know, they're great startups, whether they have that impact angle or not. Mm-hmm. So you know, Will's doing, and the team are doing you know, amazing things, like Rachel Yang, uh, around, you know, Basically, a supporting Australian startups in this space, and b proving that the outcomes are as good, if not better. Mm, that's um, very, uh, yeah, it's it's positive. It's really really great. So, um, so talking about going back from where we're at now, and talking about you personally, and, and basically your financial nerd um, <laughs> back background. So, uh, I read when I was doing a little bit of prep for this show that you've you've heavily invested in real estate as well. Is that yeah. is that correct? So. And you also mentioned, on, I remember earlier, you said that there was a checklist of like financial goals that you might have had. Um, I mean, those two points, I want to roll them into a question and just say, what is your actual investment philosophy yep. for, for, for yourself? I'd love to know. Okay. So first of all, I started quite late. Yeah. Uh, so I missed all the opportunity to do good financial planning and the, you know, all that sort of stuff in my 20s and even in my 30s. Yep. So when I left IBM, for example, after 10 years, so here's a corporate career, my first job, I'm earning top dollar mm-hmm. and I literally walked out of there with zero savings. There's a lot of people listening to this going, I've still got a chance. I've still got a chance. <laughs> and, well, I spent most of my long distance relationship. That, 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 that did a lot. So, you yep. know, there's always a girl. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I mean, in, 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 my, in my 20s, I, I, I bought a piece of investment property only because a friend from IBM 
told me about it. There were two going at the same time. Mm -hmm. It was a mortgagee sale, so I clicked in, oh, it sounds like a bargain. Mm -hmm. And we bought two apartments of Flickton two years later and made some money. Mm -hmm. I'd bought a old Porsche, a 10-year-old Porsche. Uh, it, was, it wasn't that more, much more expensive than buying a new car, but even at that age, buying a new car is dumb financially. Mm -hmm. But I actually made more money when I sold that than when I sold the apartment. Oh, so man. I, I was really surprised when you said, when your second investment you're talking about was buying a car. So how did you do that, though? Did you, did you fix it up? or like Fluke. Yes. yes sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sorry, we, did. we changed the color of the car from lime green to red. Oh, that would have made... There's an instant 20%. But my friend and I did it in his backyard together. <laughs> yeah, he and right. I. Well, there's a there's you've just lost twenty percent. Yeah, we, we did the interior of the doors in spray can. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. So there's there's the minus twenty oh, percent. So that was just lucky. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that car would be an amazing investment now. Those are going for hundreds of thousands of dollars. They would have probably you know rescraped and turned it back to lime green. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that. Uh, so I really came with no financial knowledge, and my wife was pretty much a bread breadwinner. Mm -hmm. She was working in IT. She'd left the uh, teaching industry and, and got a second degree in computer science as well and so as I was going to my dad's business yeah. we met and she was joining Telstra as a professional hire yep. and she was a breadwinner pretty much because I only took 30 grand a year mm -hmm. uh, in my in dad's business and my business and I never increased that past 50,000 until we moved to America so that was from oh god 30 to 40 about 15 years of paying myself virtually nothing in my own yep. business wow uh, but it's what you have to do. Mm -hmm. <coughs> but in 1998, I read a book called The E-Myth. Mm -hmm. I love that book. It's amazing. Best, yeah. best book. Yeah. Uh, but, but like most books, you know, it tells you what to do. It doesn't tell you how to do it. Yeah. And I eventually joined a consulting program, which is ridiculously expensive for like two hours on the phone with some person a month. Mm -hmm. who probably read the book a week before me. Mm -hmm. but having Is this through the E-Myth? Yeah. Oh, they it. were selling. So that book was kind of like a... Lead gen. Really, was it? I had yeah. no idea. That's Brilliant. such a great that's such a great um, lead generation asset. It's one of the best books, business, you know, books but, I've ever, you know, ever it, written. That, that program, the consulting program, which helped me think through and, and forced me to think through every aspect of my business, changed my business completely, systemized, that made me... I, Change the IT, and that mm -hmm. was the other story. Awesome. But the other thing it did was it said, look, you know, you're not in business. That's not your life. Mm -hmm. The whole job of your business, um, except for a very few founders whose whole passion is to, you know, is change around the their start, is to change mm -hmm. the world. Elon Musk, for example. Yeah, perfect mm -hmm. example. Okay, he'll, <coughs> he'll throw all his money to do that. But 99% yeah. of people are trying to do that, but also to make a living and get a payday one day. Yeah. And I had no thoughts around that. My business was breaking even. I had no money in the bank. My wife was working. We had two children. This is the business that you eventually exited. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so this is 98. So it's a, a, six years before we went to America. Yeah. I had no thoughts about going to America. Yeah. Uh, and I read the book and the very first thing in the book, it said, listen, buddy, work out what you want to do with your life and whether you want to be working or not. And when I sat down and did a life plan, I realized I didn't want to be running this business for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. I wanted to travel a bit. Mm -hmm. I wanted to invest in startups. Mm -hmm. I wanted to write a book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wanted to do various... Actually, I didn't want to write a book. I wanted to do public speaking. Yep. I love getting up and speaking to people. So that's what I wanted to do. And I realized all of that required time. And you don't get time while you're running a business. Mm. So I knew I would have to sell the business and fund that lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And that's when my personal finance journey began. Right. Because I worked out that I needed to sell my business for a very large number and hence the idea of going overseas. Mm -hmm. And the reason why was I needed enough money in the bank to fund what I thought then would be a $250,000 a year 
lifestyle, which sounds like a lot if you're earning 50 or 100K. Especially when you're doing those figures that... Um in 1998 also. 998 dollars. You're really, uh, you're, living on a, you're living on a yacht. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. Well, I wanted to travel and so that's business class flights you know, yep. two or three times a year, right? That's yep. what it is. Yep. That's the type of life I wanted to put my kids through private school. Just mm-hmm. that was the way it was. Yep. Uh, I wanted not necessarily have a holiday home, but I wanted to have a couple of nice cars. Yep. That's the way it is. And I wanted the freedom to do all that without earning money. Mm-hmm. And you know, and I wanted to uh, to be able to invest in startups, and that was a number I came up with. Yep. And uh, starting from zero, <laughs> so I ha- so that number had to come from. Well, you multiply that by twenty. That's my rule of thumb, mm-hmm. which simulates a five percent return. Can you say that again? So okay, so I worked out I needed two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. For yep. you, it might be fifty thousand or hundred, hundred fifty thousand. Yep. No matter yep. what that number is, that's yep. your that's your personal number. You just got to come up with for yourself. Oh, you multiply it by twenty for your, for you which mean simulates life. a five percent return. Yes. Okay. Cool. Which means I need to have about five million dollars sitting in assets, mm-hmm. passive assets. Mm-hmm. And as I said, I was starting with zero. So I still had my business. It was still a small business. Mm-hmm. Didn't have th- thoughts of going to America at that stage. But what I did do is I bought my first piece of commercial real estate. Mm-hmm. So remember, I hadn't bought any investment real estate since I was working for IBM 20 years before that. We'd bought our own house and we're busy paying off a mortgage and a little renovation like every other yep. couple does. My mm-hmm. wife was working. And what I did was I used my cash flow from the business to actually buy an office for the business. Mm-hmm. So I bought a, a, a piece of real estate just over one and a quarter million dollars using zero down payment and zero of my own money in the bank. The old 105% mortgage. Yeah, well, I, I, I stretched the payments from my customers and my suppliers out mm-hmm. enough to give me a buffer of cash in the bank and that became my deposit mm-hmm. because as you stretch out payment times, more cash comes in from your client than you're paying out. Mm-hmm. So you build up a little bit of a cash buffer, mm-hmm. which you have to pay back eventually. Yep. So that paid the deposit, and then the profits of the business, you know, I kept a real tight control of expenses for the mm-hmm. next year, didn't add staff as quickly as I needed to, held back on doing a few things I wanted to, but that paid the mortgage. Mm-hmm. And then a year later, the business had grown sufficiently that I managed to fix up my timetable paying suppliers mm-hmm. and I managed to keep up with the mortgage payments without <laughs> stretching the business. Fixed up your timetable paying, paying suppliers. So that was my first foray into real estate. And what, what age were you then? Um, 30, late 30s. Gotcha. Interesting. Um, yeah, cool. My, my, um, my dad's uh, favorite book is Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Um, so he and he has invested in a decent amount of real estate. Um, had some good wins and some some could have beens and, and so on and so forth. And he really drilled into me to um, buy real estate when I was really young. I bought my first house when I was 19, actually, and then had two or th- two. I bought my third place. I don't know whether I had three at any time, but I bought my third place by the time I was like 22, 23. And I basically funded my traveling all around the world throughout my 20s with the equity. Yeah. Like I would come back from a trip. I spent about 18 months traveling. Um, I'd come back from a trip, refinance, do a renovation, do whatever I needed to do, and then I'd go away again. You flip it to make enough money yeah, to go away again. Yeah, pretty much. And, uh, and I've been to nearly 50 countries and I wouldn't change a thing. I don't have any real estate anymore. I started my business and then the idea was to have one property at all times and then start the business. And then all my money went, in, went into the business. But um, so, so, so going back to the, the philosophy thing, so if you were... Um, if you were so 
obviously you had your exit, you started investing in, in um, real estate and so forth. But if you were um, if you were starting out again, or if you were to give advice to somebody that's listening, that's you know in their thirties when people are really starting to think about, okay, cool, I want to set myself up so I can live comfortably. I really love what you said about you know lifestyle stuff because I think we work way too much as a as a society as a culture. It's it's really dumb. But if you were to give someone some advice, like where would where would you start if you did it all again? Well, so the bit I was missing, obviously, was to save 10% of your pay packet in the bank and all the stuff that books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Yep, would Richest give Man you. in Babylon. And Richest Man, well, those are the first two books I read in 1998. Yeah. Richest Man in Babylon, sick, I love that book. It's, it's I've read Rich book. Dad, Poor Dad too. But. So, the, so you know, those are the first <laughs> two personal finance books I read and I'm in my late 30s and thinking, what have the fuck have I missed out on? <laughs> yeah. It opened my eyes, so I was on this parallel journey, one, to grow my business in a way so I could get to this large number. Yep. But two is I've got to, I may not ever sell the business. So yeah. I've got to invest as much money yeah. as I can That's right. along the way. So I yep. actually made my first money out of investing, <clears throat> earning 50K a year from my own business. It's not yep. like the business was generating millions. That yeah. wasn't until years later. Yeah, you didn't need a heap to start. Yeah, so I, the first thing I did was I started reading every single personal finance book that mm-hmm. I could get my hands on. Mm-hmm. And I still do today. You'd be surprised. Mm-hmm. I still buy personal finance books, mainly just to read them and say, that's bullshit, that's bullshit. <laughs> but to do that. So my first thinking, so I missed out on the, the things like, you know, uh, saving 10 or 15% of your income <laughs> and all those things that those books will tell you. But my two, number one, my two number one, really. My num- <laughs> number my one, one a, number one A. Yeah, one A, one B. <laughs> one, first of all, earn more than you spend. Yep. And that's very powerful because most books you read will say live within your means. Mm-hmm. I say make your means as large as possible mm-hmm. and then don't spend it. Yep. Because that difference, if you, if you just focus on, you know, money saving and cutting out the lattes and doing all that sort of stuff, you're going to focus on thinking small. Mm. You try to save a coffee, coffee here, a coffee there, and your life is you know, really shit mm-hmm. in doing that. So what's yep. the point? I say rather lift the lid on what you're earning. So if you've got a job, then start a side hustle. You know, open up an eBay store or do a little Shopify store on the side or yep. write some, if you're a coder, write a bit of code. I had, to, um, had a bloke on uh, last week who was, um, his specialty was dark net drug dealing actually. So another side hustle option. Uh, look, look <laughs> if he's got the good stuff, just give my number. <laughs> but other than that, <laughs> Sorry. so start a side hustle within yeah. your legalities and morals <laughs> and save all of that money yes. as well as saving some of your own or mm-hmm. save as much of that money as you can. Mm-hmm. That's my number one rule. And mm-hmm. my number two rule, my 1B rule is delayed gratification. Mm-hmm. So don't just get something today because you want it. And I've got some rules of thumb around that. But let's 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 say your your rich auntie dies and leaves you some money. Mm-hmm. You know, spend ten percent of it because you deserve to spend some money mm-hmm. and lock the rest away, never yep. to be seen again. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's towards your nest egg, your, your retirement. So delaying gratification, not buying something the second that you see it, will get rid of most of your overspending issues. Delayed gratif- gratification. So, for example, if someone doesn't get a, a, a lump sum, if someone's just, um, if they're saving some of their day-to-day, uh, their living expenses is going, they're siphoning some off and it's going to their savings and so on and so forth. So, can you give us an example of like how you would use that rule in a day-to-day sense? Yeah, uh, just you walk into a shop and you see a leather jacket and it's you know, only $800 and it's a bargain right, for a leather jacket these days. Uh, and you say, I really want that leather jacket. Ask them to put it aside for you for 48 hours. Mm-hmm. 
and just go home and then just decide if you really want that leather jacket. Yeah. And the chances are once you think it through, you'll probably decide you don't really need that leather jacket. Maybe you'll put it off and buy it something like that in two months' time and by then you'll have forgotten all about it. Yeah, so it's really the sleep on it the sleep on it rule. Yeah, and the bigger the purchase, obviously, <coughs> the longer you need to sleep on this. Like yeah. if you think about buying a new car, A, don't. Yeah, B, sleep on it forever. And sleep on it for, <laughs> and if you're not going to do that, at least sleep on it for a year, you know, <laughs> yeah. that type of thing. And yeah. that will see you 90% of the way to stage one of you know, personal finance. Well, I think, um, I think the real disappointing fact for me of this whole um, situation of managing personal finance is... We have too many bright, flashy objects, you know? Like, you walk down the street, we're in the city now, you walk down the street or get on one of the freeways or whatever, and all you see is hundreds of billboards, buy this ridiculous shit you don't need, buy the, you know, sign up to this program that you probably don't want. You know, like, we just get, we get pulled in so many directions and the, the whole um, consumerism thing is, is pretty tough to, tough to beat. I actually, um, I s- saw the um, Netflix documentary Minimalism um, recently, and it really changed. Uh, by recently, it was probably like three or four years ago. Because I used to um, buy lots of different things. I'd go into JB Hi-Fi to buy some new earphones because I love listening to podcasts and audiobooks, and I would walk out with a new TV and a set of earphones. You yeah. know, because I wanted extra three inches. So I actually, I've done. I've always been good at earning money, but bad at managing it. I'm getting better at managing it now. I really think I think I am. But I would always get sucked into that um, buying shit that we don't need, and it's so sad because people work so hard. Really, they work so hard to make ends meet. But if you actually looked at how much stuff you don't need, that's, it's that real pleasure-driven stuff. Yeah. Like, this is going to give me dopamine right now. Like, I'm going to feel really fucking awesome about this purchase for the next 24, 48 hours. And then I don't give a shit about it for the next, you know, well, the rest of my life. So, it's hard to, um, I think it's hard to break, break through that for a lot of people because, yeah, we're just so trained to buy useless shit all the time. And look, you know, I've got the bad habits back pretty much because, you know, for me to buy, you know, a pair of headphones is probably not going to change my life anymore. But during that period, I was very disciplined Mm -hmm. about that, delaying. Now my wife says I like to buy things, I just don't like to own them. Yeah, that's cool. Um, I actually actually have just been rereading, have you read Barefoot Investor? Yes. You like it? Yeah, I actually did like it. It's one of the few that didn't suck completely. Yeah, yeah, so... You know, um, do you know, fun fact, that's the, um, um, that's the most, that's the most successful book in Australian history. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. More than the Bible? <laughs> oh, maybe not more than the Bible. Not written by an Australian, though. Okay. Let's right, say right. But written by an Australian. Yeah. Um, I actually went, I, I, first time I listened to it, I um, listened to it on audiobook, and I've, I listen to lots and lots of audiobooks, and I always read a couple of reviews and look at the ratings, and that's the highest rated book I've ever seen on Audible. I've never seen anything above 4.7, maybe 4.75. I reckon Sapiens is right up there. Sapiens yeah. is a really high rating. That's 4.9. It's just, uh, pe- people love it. But I set up the Barefoot, um, barefoot Buckets recently and, um, and it's really working wonders for me because with certain banks, you can have, all, have it all siphon off um, automatically. Yeah. So, or, or, you know, so automated, automated um, transfers. So my, my buckets are... Um, Splurge, and I don't really ever spend the splurge. Like, I mean, sorry, um, need more than what I have in the splurge, you know? So, like, right. going out and have a couple of beers with my mates. This afternoon, I'm going climbing one block that way at the indoor, indoor climbing bouldering center. Um, and it's 10% is for splurge, and it really works, works right. wonders. Smile is next, fire extinguisher, and then um, the rest is your, is your expenses. But um, I think having control and actually seeing your finances like that is really powerful. So, for me, I always had the ability to earn money 
I've always been good with earning money, bringing in large sums of money. Since I was 19, because I bought real estate, I have always dealt in like tens, twenties, fifties, hundreds of thousands. Yeah. When, especially when I was younger, when my mates were worrying about 50, 100, 200 bucks, you know? Um, and I've always been good at making money, but never been good at managing it. So f- when you said that you'd r- read those two books that changed your um, mindset around, you know, what you wanted to do investment-wise and stuff when you were 38, I kind of feel like I'm going through the same thing at probably, I'm 34 now, at probably 32, I started going through the same thing. All right, cool. I know how to make money. Um, it's always been something that's come easy to me, but I'm terrible at managing it. Do I always yeah. want to be on the hamster wheel and, 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 and stuck? So I keep, feel like I'm going around in circles with um, my um, tangents here, but... But um, yeah, okay, cool. So, so one question I did want to um, ask you, which was around the books, and before I get off talking about um, Barefoot Investor, is what are some of the books that for you really changed your perceptions on a certain thing? Like when you're talking about personal finance, investment in general, or just business in general, life in general. But what are some of those books that were real key moves for you? Uh, as the, the number one book was clearly uh, The E-Myth. Yep. For, on both the business and personal finance side. Yep. Well, it, it ignited the personal finance you know, passion. Mm-hmm. So that was a tiny little spark. Mm-hmm. But on terms of the business side, it was completely revolutionary. Yep. It set the whole base for the business for me to be able to do what came afterwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was clear oh absolutely rich dad poor dad i mean rich dad poor dad uh, the number one thing i learned from that was uh, that an asset is something that puts money in your pocket mm-hmm. and a liability is something that takes money out of your pocket mm-hmm. so then you question what is your house because yeah. you're living in the house is it putting money in your pocket mm. so is it really an asset or a liability uh, and by the way i suggest that that, that uh, people do buy a house mm-hmm. because uh, we're just not disciplined savers so the very you know the, what, what the house will do for you is it forces you to build up whatever the house value is mm-hmm. over 30 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whether you keep living in it or where you're paying rent somewhere else, but at least it forces you to have an asset. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those books and Richest, you know, Richest Man in Babylon was you know, crazy good at yeah. that time. Yeah, Richest Man in Babylon is really good because it's very palatable to, for a finance book. I think it's a really good starting point because um, it's just a, a really nice, it's, it's a narrative to a degree, you know, and it's a very nice and short and sharp, easy read, I found. Yeah. Um, so I reckon for, for people looking for personal finance books, that's a, probably a good place to start. So, um, <clears throat> and what about, I saw a quote from Warren Buffett when I was looking through your bio, it was in, in one of your um, bits and pieces, that, pieces we gathered when we were looking for, um, when I was doing the prep for the show. So, so what about like um, investing in mutual funds and so forth or shares and, 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 uh, and the like? So obviously there's a VC and angel investing that you've done and you've obviously talked about real estate, but what are your thoughts on, um, yeah, what are your thoughts on shares and, and, and funds and so forth? And also in comparison to real estate, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, there's two aspects of that. One is investing and one uh, in order to grow your wealth. And the other one is investing in order to maintain your wealth. Mm-hmm. So my investing philosophy obviously has changed dramatically before my exit yeah. when I was trying to build wealth mm-hmm. to after my exit when I'm trying to protect wealth. Yep. So let's just talk about while we're trying to build wealth, yep. the key time. Uh, I think that's when you've got to take a lot of risks. Mm-hmm. So investing in mutual funds and keeping the money in there for a long time guarantees you, I think I've done the numbers based in the US, uh, I think it's 10, nine and a bit, half percent. In Australia, it's about 8%, something yep. like that. Guarantees you, that's not going to make you wealthy. Mm-hmm. Right, an 8% return, you have to save half your pay packet for 40 years mm-hmm. in order to beat inflation and be able to retire. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Inflation's so that, a killer. So, so that's not, you know, 40 years does not sound <coughs> like, you know, getting rich to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that you, you need to take a few more chances. So 
you know, if you've got domain experience or if you know something about where technology is going, then I think you can afford to take a gamble and maybe, you know, put 10% of your money into like Tesla stocks or, mm-hmm. you know, some, like I'm, like the only stocks I'm investing in now in the risk part of my portfolio are marijuana stocks. Yep. Because I just believe in the long-term view of marijuana. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm a partaker, but I understand yep. the industry. Uh, baby formula stocks I was in because mm-hmm. of China. I've just sold out of those and China's pretty much closed the gates. So, so what do you mean by that? Out of the China, like can you uh, elaborate? So, so in China, there was a big case about, <coughs> oh, I can't remember how long ago, it was 10, 15 years ago, but they're putting paint thinners in baby formula for babies. Yep. So there's been a big flood of Chinese money going into Australian dairy companies to produce baby formula for the China market. Gotcha. And it was less regulated than now. There's been a lot of money made on the way. And I invested in a couple of, you know, startups I saw mm-hmm. and on the stock market and <coughs> made a decent return. And China's just put more roadblocks in the way now. So that's sort of dropped away. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so that's my risky part of my portfolio. I don't invest at all in mutual funds mm-hmm. at all. Real estate, I feel like, well, you've, you've got the evidence. I mean, you can go put, you know, I don't know how much money you're putting down on the property. Oh, I'll tell you, fuck all. Yeah. As a, as a 20-year-old, uh, 19-year-old kid, I through this the Australian and Victorian um, they governments they gave the I can't remember what it was but it was like 18,000 my dad gave me $15,000 from a $1,000 block that was on a title that he bought years earlier me and my brother uh, lent me 15,000 and I saved about bloody $7,000 of my own money so $7,000 I was able to leverage into a $200,000 property which you know in Frankston it was a, a real it was an investment in Frankston and Frankston was supposed to Boom, and, and it's always said Frankston's going to skyrocket, and it's yeah. so much potential. It really never did or never has. It's, it was the biggest, um, but still, you know, it's still, it would have, over the seven years I had it, it would have gone up seven, five to seven percent. Yeah. It really did actually underperform a little bit, but, but that's, you know, $15,000 per year, I was able to leverage from putting down $7,000 of my own money. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. I don't... So I think that when you're try- if you're trying to build a larger number that you then you can earn and save, if you want to work forty years, don't listen to me. Just just buy a barefoot investor and just do what it says, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. you'll be fine, right? Yeah. I'm just trying to get you out of that, you know, in in ten, twenty year time yeah. frame, yeah. which is not so easy. I want to get yeah. you out of there, you know, with an increase in lifestyle, not a decrease yeah. in lifestyle. We want to be on the boat at forty. Yeah, and I'm not, <laughs> not saying whether it's going to be a 120 foot boat or a 20 foot boat. <laughs> yeah, but you want to be, be on, a dinghy. You want to be on a dinghy or, or better, yeah, right? But you can have a day off to go and get out on that dinghy. Exactly right, or yeah. two days off. You know? <laughs> so that's you know that's that's you can't just save your way to that sort of lifestyle in that mm-hmm. time. So you've got to take some chances. So you know to do something that takes a bit of a risk. If you lose on it, so you've got time on your side, you know mm-hmm. it's off. You're going to work 40 years anyway. Yep. You're gambling on taking 20 years off that. You'll be fine. Yep. So in those respects, I think real estate is better because you can leverage it. Leverage mm-hmm. being you can borrow money. You mm-hmm. can do what you did. You leveraged $200,000 piece of real estate mm-hmm. out of $1,000 that you put down, right? Yeah, I also laid on, uh, lied on my payslips as well. <laughs> I bullshitted on them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to recommend anybody does that. <laughs> So, you know, that, so, so that's why I like real estate early. Yeah. In terms of once you, you've taken all the gambles and chances, you've built up that nest egg, I think it's very important to protect it because mm-hmm. now it has to last the rest of your life. So how old are you, Ruth? 34. Bishop? 34. So let's say you've got a 20-year plan. Mm-hmm. Let's say we get you out of there at, at uh, 54. And you're going to say, you know, 49 or it's bust, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So we'll get you out of there by 50. Mm-hmm. Compromise. So you're retired at 50. So that's... 
16 years. Well, that's actually not that far away, to be honest. 16 years doesn't sound like a lot. No, so we, have to, so we have to build, you know, you have to go on the fast track exits, but then when you retire the 50, you're living to 120, man. Mm. There's no issue these days. Bloody oath. You know, you're gonna, and you're going to want to be healthy living to that. I want to be better looking than I am now when I'm 80. Miracles, yes, <laughs> miracles, man. No, no, we're aging. We're getting, we're, yeah. we're cracking it. That's the biggest thing you want to invest in, cracking aging. hundred percent. It's, it's. But Who's that bloke? Um, there's a, there's a futurist. Kurzweil. Not Ray Kurzweil. The other, another guy. Um, yeah, Kurzweil said that there's a, there's a, there's been a child born that'll live to five hundred or whatever he said. Yeah. Um, that was another guy that. Um, so, so, you, so the time that money has to last yeah. you is forever. And that's when I still like real estate mm-hmm. because to me, real estate is one of the few asset classes that you and I can understand yeah. where the income goes up with inflation because mm-hmm. you get, get rent mm-hmm. and rent's going to increase roughly with inflation over time. In fact, on commercial properties, it's actually written into the lease. Yep. But even on residential properties, we know that, that rents yeah. go up over time. Yep. And because rents are going up, the underlying value of the real estate goes up as well, mm-hmm. roughly in line because there's mm-hmm. formulas. You know, mm-hmm. residential real estate gives you roughly a four percent return. So mm-hmm. if it goes up twenty percent, then the value goes up twenty percent. So both the capital and the income is protected by inflation over the long term of your retirement. Yeah. And so that's why, even though I'm, you know, this this, this VC who invests in tech startups, that's only a small portion of my net worth. Yep. And I've got marijuana stocks and all these That's the things. risk portion, like you said. Risk portion, which yep. I'm overweight on. I understand I'm overweight from what yep. I would recommend other people. Yep. But the bulk of the rest of my money is all in the 100% owned piece of real estate. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that the rents I get are enough to sustain me so I never need to sell yep. any of the real estate. Yeah, cool. Um, that's great. So, okay, so you've got your risk. What, what do you call the other part of your portfolio? You've got your risk and you've got your what? I don't know, safe. Safe, yeah. Yeah, passive, safe. passive. Passive, passive, yeah. Well, it depends on what stage. Again, before you're building up that, you know, large nest egg that will let you stop work, it's the risk part of your, it's the, sorry, the investing part of your portfolio. Mm-hmm. After you retire, it's the passive part of your portfolio. Mm-hmm. So we have a terminology change. Yeah, cool. Um, <clears throat> one question, one question that I um, kind of want to ask, and I asked a very similar question. Like, obviously, you want to look at it from personal finance, you, you're, kind of an expert in that I guess or like a real, you know people can take what you say and really you know take the advice and run with it but also before we wrap it up I wanted to um, ask you another piece of advice that you could give to, to you know the listeners and stuff and it's around entrepreneurship you know because so many people have great ideas they see an industry they've worked in it they can change it they can fix it they can make it better but a lot of people sit on their hands they uh, for whatever reason they, they procrastinate and they never actually Jump off the deep end, I guess. But what advice would you give to somebody who's um, yeah, looking to become an entrepreneur? You've got to be prepared to take the risk. So the problem is the longer you wait, the more of a safety net you build up. And also your expenses tend to increase as you get older. Mm-hmm. You get kids and you become more risk averse. And that's mm-hmm. certainly what I felt. Mm-hmm. So it became harder and harder and harder to get out. And I made a spur-of-the-moment decision. I mean, my father and I hadn't discussed me joined the business. It was a one-man business. It didn't look like it could afford me to me. He insisted it could. And it was really just a, dis- a decision over a sh- very short talk like we're having now. Mm-hmm. And I left and joined it. But it was like when you approach a swimming pool and you know it's going to be cold and the longer you think about it, the less likely you are to go in. <laughs> yeah. You just go dive in. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. No, well, that's great advice. Um, 
So, Adrian, your future, you know, the next 5, 10, 20 years, whatever it looks like, um, what do you want to be doing with your time? Where, where do you want to be going? What do you want to be, um, yeah, what's the next, what's the next, uh, yeah, 20 years look like for you? Uh, I've kind of made the decision already a year or so ago that I was going to stop investing in tech startups. I've done, you know, that 60 times. Mm-hmm. I wrote a blog post about what I call the half-life of an investor. I'd say investors, investors are like uranium. Yeah, we think I read that actually. <laughs> so, you know, and I, I'll have to eat my own dog food. And what that theory basically says is for every six months after my last investment, my use to the next investor, I mean, the next startup I talk to, halves. <laughs> yeah, right. See, so a lot of these angel investors and advisors in the startup space and you say, okay, what have you invested in and when? And, they, and it's got to be at least $50,000 invested, not a small 10 grand one, mm-hmm, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. please, you know. So, mate, you know, when was the last time you actually invested in a startup? And you find it was like two years ago or three years ago mm-hmm. when they sold their own business and they're giving you advice now. I mean, that's dated like smelly cheese, you know. Mm-hmm. So, I have to eat my own dog food and realise that it's probably been six months or nine months since I've done my last startup investment. If I don't do one again in the next six months, then it's probably time to walk away from doing, you know, half of this type of talk. Yep. Uh, and, and anyway, I want to do the next phase, which I've been putting off and putting off and putting off, which is now to write my personal finance book. Yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. Great. So it's been sitting in my head for actually, eight years. I, I wrote a personal finance blog under an assumed name in the late 2008s, which I won't name. It's just embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, <fair enough>. <laughs> <laughs> but it forced me to get my ideas down. Yeah. And now, now I just need to turn it all into book form. Cool. That's great. Sounds like a great project. Um, all right. So... Adrian, um, anyone that's um, listened that might be interested in what you do and want to learn more or maybe just want to see you know, some of the things you've invested in or read some of your writings, where can they go? Anything you want to plug? Where can people find you? I would say that anybody who knows me knows I'm addicted to Twitter. <laughs> so the best place to go is to follow me at smalltimevc because I am a smalltime VC <laughs> uh, at Twitter. And uh, follow me and reach out to me and... Uh, I hold office hours, which is when you, what you talked about before. Mm-hmm. When Paul Nathal and I mm-hmm. meet you for 30 minutes, we have a mm-hmm. term because we have a term for everything in this industry. Yep. So it's called office hours. Mm-hmm. So I often post up on my Twitter profile a calendar link and to open office hours. I meet with any founder. But again, oh, really? cool. again, my, I feel my, my worth is, is reducing quickly. So, <laughs> getting so quick. Getting quick, yeah. <laughs> All right, no worries. Well, um, Adrian, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Bill. And uh, that's a wrap. Cool. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed that show, please subscribe. To subscribe, you can do it on all of your listening devices. You can subscribe at Bill Kurt TV at YouTube. And <laughs> that's it. Also, don't forget to support our sponsors, yeti.com.au forward slash bro. Check out trueprotein.com.au and use the code bro there for 10% off. And for 20 hours free of virtual assistant services head to athena.co that's a-t-h-y-n-a dot co and use the code bro when you inquire alrighty see you next week